Again, I say our text is Matthew 26, in beginning at verse 57 through 67. It may not be readily realized that after Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane by Jewish and Roman authorities alike, that there were two trials involving accusatory crimes against him. One ecclesiastical and one political. These involved each had, involved, each had their own uh, acts to grind. Caiaphas and the Jewish council, known as the Sanhedrin, were out to prove that Jesus was a blasphemer, punishable by death for claiming to be the son of God, just as Jewish law. Pilate, the governor of Rome, was tasked with the responsibility to determine if anything Jesus had said or done was worthy of death according to Roman law. These two courts, with their two differing agendas, eventually merged together to condemn and execute the Prince of Peace, who in no way was guilty of blasphemy in the ecclesiastical court, nor of sedition in the political court. Yet they found grounds for crucifixion in the ecclesiastical court on the false charge of blasphemy and in the political court because Pilate did not have the moral background of his own convictions. What was his convictions? Let me read it for you. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man, Luke 23, verse 4. And he came out and said this three different times. He'd go back and talk to Jesus. Then he'd bring him back out and make a similar statement. Then he'd go back and talk to him again and so forth. Well, with that said, Pilate bowed to the pressure of the crowd. He acquiesced to their cry for crucifixion. And he figuratively, you remember, washed his hands of the whole matter, though the blood stain remained. But Pilate, though guilty of capitulation, bore the lesser guilt. Jesus answered Pilate this way, The one who handed me over to you is guilty of greater sin. That would have been the Jewish council that we're studying this morning. And yes, the greater sin because they knew better. And they had the scriptures of God explaining what Messiah, who Messiah was and how he would be. Those guilty of handing over Jesus to Roman jurisdiction were none other than the Caiaphas of our text, the high priest, and all of the Sanhedrin council to a man. Look at Mark 14, 64, says they all condemned him as worthy of death. So we want to look at this trial this morning, and there's some aspects to it. But we're going to talk about the ecclesiastical trial. Ecclesiastical, is this just a Greek word? Ecclesia is the Greek word for church. So this is like a, a, the church trial, the religious trial that we have before us. And if you look at your bulletin outline, it began with the questioning of Jesus by the high priest. While awaiting the full assembly of the Sanhedrin, other gospel accounts talk about this, Caiaphas embarked upon his own questioning. John's account tells us, Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. John 18, 
verse 19. So there's the agenda of the high priest. I want to know about your disciples, and I want to know what you taught. Well, when we look in the other gospel accounts, Mark, Luke, John, we have no scriptural record of what these questions might have been. But in that we do have later accusations by Pilate of possible sedition, it may be fair to say that Caiaphas brought up such things as uh, the band of men with whom uh, Jesus associated. Who are these men? Uh, maybe uh, what, what were their names? What were their professions? And what was his intent in amassing such a following? Uh, maybe there was some questioning down that whole line. But whatever the queries, we are told Jesus stood mute. He stood mute. He refused to answer the questions. Now, I can think of a number of answers that he could have given. He could have said, well, you know, one of uh, my disciples is a betrayer. And for the cheap price of 30 pieces of silver, he sold my location to you so you could arrest me. And you guys all know about that because you paid him the 30, 30 pieces of silver. Or he could have said, you know, just down the 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 corridor there are a few distances. There is another disciple that's going to deny me three times before the rooster crows this morning. Or he could have said, as for the rest, they've all deserted me in fear, verse 56 of our text. All of these answers would have been no exaggeration of the truth whatsoever, but Jesus said nothing. He would not become the accuser of his own, of the very people he came not to condemn, but to save, to justify. If these ecclesiastical prelates have a snare to catch Jesus, so be it, but he will not play Judas to the Sanhedrin in an attempt to save his own neck. At his arrest in the garden, the soldiers sought Jesus to which he replied, I told you I am he. And if you are looking for me, then let these men go. John 18, verse 8. And subsequently, the disciples fled the scene in safety. So he's not going to help this Sanhedrin now condemn his disciples. He didn't do it when he was arrested. He worked out a deal with the soldiers. Let these men go. You want me? Let them go, and they did. So they fled in fear. So all that about the disciples. He remained quiet. Next, Caiaphas questioned Jesus about his doctrine. You can be sure that they were jealous for their own position as theologians in Jerusalem. The Sanhedrin, the council, consisted of scribes, and so they were the recorders of Scripture. There were also Pharisees who prided themselves as teachers of the law. We are the rabbis around here. We teach the law. And then there were the Sadducees, another sect within the Sanhedrin. These were the humanistic philosophers of the day. They didn't believe a lot of the scriptures themselves, but they were humanists. We could say it that way. Well, what now about this Jesus teacher? This peasant who was but a carpenter's son. What credentials did he have to call himself a teacher of man? Well, Jesus did choose to answer this question, and here's what he said. 
It's found in John 18. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. John 18, verse 20 and 21. This was a brilliant answer. Uh, but it got him a slap in the face by an attendant standing nearby, John 18, verse 22. Brethren, the best reply to slander is a blameless life. Nothing he taught consisted of a secret agenda hosted in a dark cellar. No, his teaching was in broad daylight, and his best defense was, ask those who heard me. How blessed are we with no, when no defense is needed because our words and our behavior tell the story that we can rest in allowing the facts to speak for themselves. Basically, they, that's what Jesus is doing here. And in our case, wherein our personal history may well be pocked with willful sin, it is our comfort to hear the Apostle John's assurance, My dear children, I write to you, so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. 1 John 2, verse 1. And not only as our spokesperson, but as our atonement, whose blood paid the price for his people's sin. So guiltless are we, so forgiven, so washed, innocent, that Paul could say, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Romans 8, verse 33 and 34. Could you think of a better advocate, a better lawyer, standing before the bar of justice, before God Almighty, pleading our case than his own innocent Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. What a powerful concept. I would say that let us, like the Lord, be meek and lowly in heart, not defensive, not ready to fight. It's hard to be meek when we are falsely accused, when interrogated like a common criminal, even abused with an unjustifiable slap in the face. Where's the justice in all this? This is supposed to be a trial. The Bible calls on us to remember the patience of Job. But Job's patience dims in comparison to our Lord's patience on this occasion. Just an hour, just an hour before Peter was told to sheathe his sword, he pulled out his sword, he was going to defend Jesus, Peter and his one sword, against all the guards the Romans had sent out to the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus. And he was told to sheathe his sword with Jesus' reminder. Here's what Jesus said to him on that occasion. Do you think that I cannot call on my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Legion is 6,000, 12 legions, 72,000 angel soldiers. And yet on that occasion, Jesus chose not to execute that prerogative because the scriptures had foretold otherwise, he was to die, and he came to die 
and no Peter with his little sword, nor all of the angelic hosts with their powerful supernatural ways was going to rescue Jesus. So we see him in meekness here. But I would suggest, however, that we move on past admiring Jesus' meekness. Let us instead emulate it. God's desire for us is not that we seek Jesus' meekness as a Christian virtue, but that we believe and apply Jesus' words, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Matthew 5, verse 5. What does meek mean? Well, I looked up the uh, Greek word in the Greek lexicon. And by the way, a lexicon, a Greek lexicon is nothing more than a, a Greek dictionary like we have to define English words. Well, they wrote Greek lexicons to define Greek words. So I looked this up. And I can do no better than actually read to you what the lexicon says about this Greek word. It says, the meek are those wholly relying on God rather than their own strength to defend themselves against injustice. Thus, meekness towards evil people means knowing God is permitting the injuries they inflict. Permitting those things. That he is using them to purify his elect. That he will deliver his elect in his time. Isaiah 41, 17 and Luke 18, 1 and following. Gentleness or meekness is the opposite to self-assertiveness and self-interest. It stems from trust in God's goodness and control over the situation. The gentle person is not occupied with self at all. This is a work of the Holy Spirit, not of the human will. And then he quote, they quote Galatians 5.23 where the fruit of the Holy Spirit is meekness. One of the one of them that is listed there. And so, you see in Christ, he's being accused falsely, he's being slapped, being abused. He keeps quiet when his answers won't change a thing. He defends the doctrine that he taught, saying that many people heard it, go ask them. That's Caiaphas. This is his questions to Jesus. And, his, and Jesus answered. Secondly, you'll notice then, they started for a search for witnesses against Jesus. Everyone knows in a court proceeding, ecclesiastical or political, the best support for an accusation to stick is an eyewitness. In the Mosaic Law, listen to this. Listen to the justice of this. On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a man shall be put to death, but no one shall be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. Deuteronomy 17, verse 6. To me, that sounds extremely fair. Extremely fair. In looking for justice, God's judicial procedure acknowledge that one witness may be a liar. Okay? Or... If he's not a bold-faced liar, nevertheless, he might be confused or mistaken about what he or she saw. So it is a much, much easier time to incriminate a person on the basis of two corroborating witnesses. 
And this was such a safeguard that the New Testament church brought the same principle into ecclesiastical decisions in the New Testament. Paul writes to the Corinthians, Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. 2 Corinthians 13 verse 1. And with regard to church leaders, he writes, Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. 1 Timothy 5 verse 19. Do we really want a court system in which one person can say, he did such and such? Oh, really? Oh, let's, go, let's call the court together and see what we can do about that. It's assumed, of course, you can get the assumption here, that in these directives, the witnesses come forward to testify on their own accord without coercion and certainly without bribery. The idea of paying someone to testify was strictly condemned in the Old Testament. And you could see why. The prophet Amos addressed the leaders of Israel. You hate the one who reproves in court and you despise him who tells the truth. You trample on the poor and you force him to give you grain. There's the bribe, say. Oh, you want this, you want this uh, court decision to come out your way? Uh, we want to see a little grain from your uh, granary. Therefore, you have built, us, built stone mansions for yourself, but you will not live in them. And though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. You oppose the righteous and take bribes. And you deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent man keeps quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Yeah, you wouldn't speak up either if you knew that the kangaroo court was fixed. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Acts, Amos 5, verse 10 through 15. See, God saw it all, and he noted it all. He says, you know, your ecclesiastical courts, they're crooked. You're using them as an occasion to make money. So it's pretty clear that God had a complaint on the judicial rulings of the day. Justice was set on the shelf, and a decision in one's favor could have been gained by greasing the palms of the judges with bribes, which always perverts justice. Think about it. Now what do we do with the account before us here of Jesus' ecclesiastical trial? Look at verse 59. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Matthew 26, verse 59 and 60. Mark's gospel adds this. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. In other words, there's this other breach of justice. One witness comes, another one comes, and there's a conflict. So the question comes, what kind of court is this where the chief justice and the others of the council have already made up their minds as to Jesus' verdict, namely that he was guilty and a candidate for the death sentence? 
And then thereafter, they scoured Jerusalem for people who were willing to perjure themselves for a bribe to say anything the council deemed incriminating so that the death sentence could apply. Well, likely it would have worked, except for one thing. They could not find two witnesses singing the same note. <laughs> no, each sang a different tune, and even the most corrupt magistrates would understand that the death sentence would have to remain off the verdict for lack of corroborating evidence. Their own law said, no, you don't, can't put a person to death on the testimony of one person. Well, not on the testimony of two or three that are, you can't get them together. I'm sure we've all seen crime dramas where the police try to get the, to the bottom of a felony by taking the testimony of an eyewitness. But when one witness says one thing and another says the direct opposite, their case begins to crumble for lack of necessary and compelling what? Harmony. Agreement. One says the murder was committed at night. The other says, oh, no, it was committed in broad daylight. One says the victim was stabbed to death. And the other one says, no, no, he was shot. Which is it? Police cannot tell. This is what happened at Jesus' trial. The witnesses could not agree. What is more, the constituency of the council was of such a nature that much of what Jesus had said of a derogatory nature... The council would never want to see the light of day. Why? Well, he had spoken against the Pharisees, for one thing, for their holding to the traditions of the elders and negating the scriptures by their traditions. And the Sadducees were a group who have, would have agreed with that because the Sadducees didn't like the Pharisees. They were not traditionalists by any stretch of the imagination. So you got that controversy. Conversely, the Sadducees disallowed the miraculous. They didn't believe in angels, etc., all of which the Pharisees affirmed. So because of these internal feuds, the council members kept quiet about their differences and decided instead to join hands in condemning an innocent man because he was cramping the style of both the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Both of these council parties wanted... Jesus out of the picture. So injustice was in the very fabric of their deliberations. There is no way Jesus could be given a fair, unbiased trial, ecclesiastical trial before the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin consisted of 70 council members, Jewish rabbis, teachers, scribes, People of that nature. So, this is getting them nowhere. They're looking for witnesses to put the mark of death on Jesus. In time, verse 60, the appearance came of two lying witnesses. Finally, two came forward, we read. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Herod's temple took over 40 years to build. So this accusation, if true, was an impossible claim. Mark's gospel states, even then their testimonies did not agree. So you got these two guys coming, and even there, they, there's some discrepancy there. 
If one person lies and the other swears to it, that is still no credible evidence for conviction. And make no mistakes, this was a downright lie and a decision full of deception because Jesus had said no such thing. Fortunately, we have in the biblical record not only the actual words Jesus said, but the divine meaning as explained by the Apostle John. It's found in John chapter 2. After Jesus purged the temple of moneylenders selling sheep and cattle right in the temple courts. You remember that scene. He overturns their money tables and so forth. Making the temple into a secular market when it should have been a house of prayer. The Jews demanded, what miraculous sign can you show to prove your authority to do all this? John 2 verse 18. And Jesus answered, here's his answer. Destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. Notice the difference <clears throat> in the two accounts. The false witnesses put these words in Jesus' mouth. This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Verse 61 of our text. Whereas the actual words from Jesus' own lips were, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. John 2 verse 19. Nothing was said about Jesus claiming to be able to destroy Herod's temple, nor that he would rebuild it in three days. John tells us that Jesus was referring to the temple of his body, which when we understand that makes perfect sense of Jesus' claim. You Jews destroy this temple, his body, and within three days I will raise it again. Not rebuild it, raise it again. Talking about resurrection. And you can see what these false witnesses did. They mixed the lie with enough truth to make their accusation seem plausible. These are wicked kinds of lies because they are filled with deception. So just enough truth to give the wrong kind of spin. Spurgeon writes, the worst kind of lie is that which is manufactured out of truth. It does a great deal more mischief than if it were falsehood from stem to stern. End quote. Yet that said, even with these added lying embellishments, altering a word here and altering a word there, Mark tells us, even then their testimony did not agree. Mark 14, verse 56. Their patch quilt covering was so full of rotten thread that the pieces could not hold it together. The witnesses were ready to perjure themselves by swearing to various fantasies of their own imagination, but they could not agree to two accounts telling the same story. So, here's another twosome of witnesses, but they're liars, and they're found out to be liars. What was Jesus' response? Mark 14, verse 61 says, Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Even when the high priest tried to intimidate him into doing so. Isaiah the prophet of Old Testament foretold this saying, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Isaiah 53, verse 7. 
Have you ever noticed how innocent people are not in a hurry to answer slander? They're not. Guilty people, on the other hand, are quick, quick, quick to their own defense, eager to apologize or promote extenuating circumstances for what they said or what they did. If by speaking out no good can come of it, then by all means, keep silent. Keep silent. Solomon shares his wisdom with us saying, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will be like him yourself. Proverbs 26 verse 4. Peter commends Jesus' behavior writing in his epistle. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly, something he didn't get in his trials. 1 Peter 2, verse 22. I want you to note that the lying witnesses who misrepresented Jesus' words about destroying the temple and then rebuilding it in three days, unwittingly, unwittingly, this was not their intention, But unwittingly, they reminded Jesus of the true reality, namely, that Satan and demons and evil men and death would have hold of him but what? Three days. Three days. Afterwards, which would result in his glorious victory through resurrection. I'm sure they never meant such encouragement. But God turned their evil intent to good. It is Joseph's evil brothers foiled again. Joseph said to them, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what he is now being done, namely the saving of many lives. John, Genesis 50, verse 20. Well, even while they're trying to do their worst, these are false witnesses, you remember. These are liars, they're schemers. While they're trying to do their worst, Christ is encouraged. Let us learn from Jesus under trial that the holiness of Jesus' life, his calm, quiet, truthful demeanor, demeanor made the false accusations of his enemies like snowflakes hit by the morning sun on your driveway. Gone. The liars were caught in their own lies and thwarted by their own falsehoods. We should also note that anything we teach of truth will be subject by the enemies of the cross to distortion, misrepresentation, downright slander. Yet God reminds us through his prophet Jeremiah, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in in pieces. Jeremiah 23, verse 29. Truth triumphs is what Uh, Jeremiah is saying. Well, going the witness route to condemn Jesus to death has not gone too successfully because the witnesses had conflicting stories. In other words, Jesus' silence has spoken louder than the verbal accusations, and he is vindicated by these witnesses. And so, and so, the high priest. He decides to take the gloves off 
and engage in, point four in our outline, a direct and personal interrogation of Jesus. Look at verse 62. Then the high priest stood up. Oh boy. Here comes the big guns. Are you not going to answer, he says? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The same wicked accusations deserve the same mute response. The high priest may be standing there in his regal robes, but his mouth is spewing the same vile and lying position of the false witnesses. He stands over Jesus like some imposing figure meant to extort a confession by intimidation. What the false witnesses could not achieve through their lies. Now, this priest should have recused himself from Jesus' case because it is obvious that he was frustrated and could not conduct himself in an unbiased way. But Caiaphas did not do this. Instead, he drew the noose a little tighter. Look at verse 63. I charge you under oath of the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ. That word means Messiah. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Well, now Jesus speaks, and he does so. Because the high priest has charged him under oath by the living God to answer. You know, silence is sometimes interpreted as a denial or disagreement with what's being said. And Jesus was not about to give the impression that he was denying that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. He knew he was, and so he answers Yes, it is as you say. And just so there's no mistaking his answer, he went on to say, But I tell you all, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming in the clouds of heaven. Verse 64. Note from verse 63 that the high priest understood that the Messiah would be, in his own words he says, the Son of God. See, they knew some things here, folks. And so Jesus affirms this, and he went on to give the consequences of this truth, which would read something like this. At present, in the here and now, you men sit as prosecutor, judge, and jury over my earthly destiny. But the day is coming when the tables will be turned, and all of you will stand before me in the tribunal of heaven. And the goats will go away into eternal punishment, but my sheep to eternal life, Matthew 25, verse 46, which is the outcome of that trial. Now I want you to understand here, that Jesus is not raging here. No, he is calm. He maintains his meekness, but he tells the truth as it is so that no man on the council dare think that he is a defeated foe. He may look like a pleasant, a peasant rather, in his humble robe, but he is in fact the Son of God and King of the nations. And they can deny it all they wish, but their denial doesn't make it so. 
Well, what would we expect out of this? Number five, Jesus is condemned by the council. Verse 25 tells us that Caiaphas tore his robes, which is a symbol of extreme abhorrence at what has just been said or done, in this case, Jesus' testimony. And he exclaimed, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? What do you think? And they responded, yeah, he's worthy of death. He's worthy. Let me ask a question. Since when does the presiding officer in the court get to prejudice the outcome by telling the others what the verdict is? Without any deliberation by the whole, seems to me that justice would require that Jesus' claims of deity be investigated and given careful consideration. And what about his teaching? Is it moral? Is it righteous? Is it free from deception? Oh, and what about his miracles, which Nicodemus, a Pharisee, seemed to admit when he came to Jesus at night and express what would be the consensus of the Pharisees. Here's what he said when he came to Jesus. Rabbi, which means teacher. Rabbi, we... No. Who's the we? We Pharisees. He was a Pharisee. We Pharisees, of whom I am a part, know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. That's what he says they know about Jesus. Oh, and this poses another observation. Where is Nicodemus at this council meeting, for one? And Joseph of Arimathea, another Pharisee, for he is the one that came and asked of Pilate that he could take the body of Christ down from the cross and bury it in his own fresh, brand new tomb. Where are these guys? I can't believe that they would remain silent in this lopsided, wickedly stacked kangaroo court without some interjection that things had gotten out of hand with the whole proceedings. For they were disciples of Christ. They knew, as all the rest, that a man could not be justly condemned to die without examining the truth or the error of his defense. So either Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea were not present at this council meeting or they were somehow intimidated to remain silent, which I don't think would be likely because we're talking about two of them. I think they have been excluded. Can't prove it, but knowing later what they say about Christ and what Nicodemus learned of Christ in John 3. Jesus, however, with this counsel, is summarily, summarily condemned to die for blasphemy. There is no calling of witnesses for the defense. There is no investigation into Jesus' lineage, his birthplace, his parents, his testimony. If they had checked that, they would have found he was born in Bethlehem, not Nazareth. And the scripture said that that's where the Christ would be born. There was no stupend, uh, examination of his stupendous miracles, the healing of the blind, the epileptics, the demon-possessed, those with crippled legs, those with deformed appendages. 
none of which could be done by some kind of soothsayer. There was no analysis of his doctrine to see if it agreed with God's law in the book of Moses. It was then, as it is with so many in our day, people condemned Jesus and his teaching without any due diligence to investigate the sinlessness of his person, the excellence of his teaching, and the model of a righteous and holy life that points sinners to peace with God through his atoning blood. They had their agenda and they stuck to their agenda and the agenda was death sentence. There are people who listen to the gospel sermons and they nitpick on the mannerisms of the preacher or the simplicity of the gospel message. They check out the surroundings and see an auditorium that's scarcely full of listeners. A room with no icons, no candles, no altar, no pipe organ, and they quip, how can God be in that humble place? Their arrogance will not allow them to sit at the feet of Jesus and hear of him, not knowing that he, in the end, he is seated at the right hand of God Almighty, on high, verse 64, will be ruler over their destiny. You don't judge God. He judges you. He judges me. And if that were not sin enough, they would side with the council's death sentence and subsequent torture as they began to spit in his face and strike him with their fists and mock him as a prophet of God, saying to him, while blindfolded, by the way, Mark Gospel tells us that, Prophesy to us, Christ, who slapped you. Verse 27 of our text. You see, nothing was thought of as too evil or too disgraceful to pour out on Jesus. We believers, however, see ourselves as the fitting object of such abuse. We know, as Peter says, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace, NIV says, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And with his stripes or wounds, we, we are healed. Isaiah 53 verse 5. So we see this as a, in a different light. We see Jesus stepping in as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world takes away the sin of his people. And so in so doing, he takes the punishment that we deserve. We see him beaten up for us, spit on for us, mocked and ridiculed for us. Well, my time's gone, so I can't develop these next points, but I'm going to at least state them for you to write down, and you can consider them. Three-point application. Number one, be ready to share in the ridicule and slander unbelievers vent on Christ. Be ready to share in that. Jesus told us in John 15, the servant is not greater than the master. So if they did these things to him, what do you expect? Those who think foully of Jesus will speak foully of you. And if they persecuted him, they will persecute you. Right now, I hate to say it, right now in the Mediterranean area, in the Mideast, Christians are being slaughtered for their faith. 
beheaded, you know about that, burned in steel cages. Why? Because they hate Christ, that's why. They hate Christ and they hate Christians attached to him. Secondly, let us learn how eager we should be to bestow honor and glory on the one whom men are eager to disdain and vilify. Not simply in speech, but in deeds. Let us be willing to glorify him. So I'm asking, what sacrifice, what difficult task by you would bring glory to the man of sorrows acquainted with grief? We can go two ways on this. We can shun and pull back. Or we can say, yes, that's my Savior. And I'm happy he took the spit on his face. Oh, and it gets, it gets worse, folks. This trial gets worse. They bring out rods and they beat him. They bring out a crown of thorns and crush it into his face. We should be eager to bestow honor and glory on him who underwent such torture for us. Number three. You should rest securely, securely in the sufficiency of the Savior. I use the word sufficiency on purpose. The spittle on his face means that we have a clean, glowing face for those who believe. The false testimony and slander means there's going to be no condemnation for you or for me because of our faith. In Caiaphas' tribunal, let us see that Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he, Jesus, might bring us to God. That's what his suffering was for. And we see him being God through his trial, all the way through. He doesn't stoop to the tactics of men. Though he experiences the hatred and the cruelty of men. And God is saying to us, we have a sufficient Savior. I would say it this way, he bore it all. Nothing was left for us to bear. Salvation is not a partnership. It is not us doing our part and God doing his part and two together means we're saved. No, it's Jesus doing our part and Jesus doing God's part, and it's his work and his work alone that brings poor lost sinners to the place of forgiveness for all of eternity. Hallelujah, what a Savior, right? Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you and praise you for what you show us in the trial. We're not happy to see that sinners treated you such. But when we understand that you were sitting there, standing there in our place, and that they were hating you and despising you and torturing you because of our sin, though they didn't see it that way, we are humbled that you would come and take such beatings, such cruelty from sinners. But it was necessary. There, there's no man that could step in no mere human being, not even ourselves. We can't atone for our sins. 
The pot is empty. There's nothing there to give. It would atone for our sins. But you, by becoming the sacrificial lamb, truly the lamb of God, it takes away the sin of the world. You, by doing that, grant salvation and freedom and forgiveness for all who will trust that, who will believe that you did that for them. Not some kind of blanket salvation for just anybody and everybody, but for those who will trust you and believe that you did that for them. Where we don't have that trust, we don't have that faith, and where we will not be willing to give up our sin and, and say to, to ourselves about ourselves that we are sinners indeed in, in need of saving grace. Lord, grant us that faith and grant us that repentance. They are the gifts of God. And that's why all who hear the gospel do not respond in a right way. But Lord, we want to respond in the right way. We want to know Christ is our Savior. Bless these truths to our hearts and may you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity, number 568. That's in the red hymnal, 568. Let's stand as we sing.